I want us to look into a question that has plagued me for a number of years now, and it's all about church discipline. What behaviour do we expect from those who attend our churches, and, and how do we deal with them if their behaviour goes against what we feel is biblical teaching? Now, in this series, we have been talking about sex and sexuality, and that's probably the biggest issue that raises the biggest concerns in our church community. You know, sex before marriage, gay relationships, remarriage and divorce. But actually, this is an issue that covers all behaviour that seems to be contrary to the life that God is calling us to pursue. Do we hold back from discipline because love and forgiveness is key? Well, that's certainly got the church in a lot of trouble in the recent past around abuse scandals. Or do we take a hard line and refuse baptism and church membership to anyone who doesn't repent fully of a sinful lifestyle? I've certainly heard that argument used. Or is there perhaps another way, a harder way, but one that reflects the character of Jesus more than anything else? Well, let's explore this question together. If you have ever visited another country, it's always a good idea to check out their customs and if there would be anything in particular you should avoid doing so as not to cause offence unintentionally. So for example, in China you shouldn't wear shoes in someone else's homes. In Singapore it's illegal to bring chewing gum into the country and in Korea you don't smile at strangers. I remember going to visit some friends once in a Muslim country. And because I wasn't staying in a tourist area, they told me I shouldn't wear shorts or short sleeves, which is really annoying because it was over 30 degrees. But we try and accommodate. We try and blend in. We maybe feel distaste towards overly brash and attention-seeking tourists. But what I want to highlight in this talk in particular is that for God's people, God expects the complete opposite. We are not called to blend in. We're called to stand out. Let me explain. Throughout the first few books of the Old Testament, where we can read about the early history of Israel, we are told that God would give them a land to call their own, a land where they would flourish and prosper. The slight problem was that that land, Canaan as it was called, was already occupied by a number of tribes. Now Israel might have got away with sneaking in and mingling with the locals, hoping that they wouldn't get noticed, but that was not God's plan. This is what he tells them in Deuteronomy. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. In other words, God is saying, don't imitate, don't blend in. What these people are doing is plain wrong and you are not to be like them. It's because of these things that they do that I'm going to drive them out of the land. This nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are to stand out, to be different, unique, special, set apart. In fact, the word the Bible uses to describe this kind of contrasting behaviour is holiness. God is holy and so too is to be his people. Once again from Deuteronomy, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now there's a whole book in the Old Testament that's purpose is to help the nation of Israel to be holy. And that book's called Leviticus. It's a bit of a heavy book to read, but it's full of practical advice to help its readers to be more holy, to be more like God's. 
In fact, in this book, God tells his chosen people time and time again, be holy because I am holy. You see, this book of Leviticus solves the problem of how a sinful bunch of people could live with a perfect holy God. And it teaches them how they can live up to who God has already declared them to be, holy. Biblical scholars call the latter chapters of Leviticus in particular, the Holiness Code. And it covers all sorts of areas of life and these rules can be divided into three main categories, moral, ceremonial and civic. Now the ceremonial laws around sacrifice, well they can be ignored because Jesus was the final sacrifice. We are not making sacrifices in our churches. The civic we can put to one side because we are not a theocracy like Israel was. But the moral laws, well they're a bit different. Here are some of those actions found in Leviticus that God says his holy people should have nothing to do with. Incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbour, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughters prostitutes, turning to witches. And all these rules, all these laws are summed up by this statement found in Leviticus 19 verse 18, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Unlike the ceremonial and civic laws, many aspects of the moral laws transcend time and context. And it's still a really good idea. In fact, we see many of them repeated and reiterated by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. But the rules are not the only part of Leviticus repeated in the New Testament. Matthew records these words of Jesus that may sound familiar to you. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then, like, then Peter, one of Jesus' best friends and significant leaders in the early church, wrote these words. But just as God, who called you, is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Now what's key here is that Peter wasn't writing exclusively to the Jews, you know, those who had inherited the title God's chosen people. No, he was writing to the church. A mishmash of different races, colours and background all coming together under the banner of Jesus. And as far as Peter was concerned, those rules for Israel were now just as applicable for the church. He goes on to say this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The church was now God's holy people. And once again, the purpose of these rules were to help God's chosen holy people to live up to who God had declared them to be, holy, to be different, unique, special, set apart. And Jesus told his followers to let their light shine. And Peter in his letter goes on to explain what that would look like. That they can let their light shine in the darkness by doing good, loving their neighbour, and making a break from their past lives, typified by, as Peter says, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. The church, God's chosen people, were to be distinctly different to the world they inhabited. 
in word, in deed, and in their values. And if we look at the history books, well, that's exactly what they were. Historian Dr. Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyers of God, which is a history of the early church, makes the claim that the church's success in overcoming the pagan Roman Empire wasn't through relevance or relatability to culture, but through its difference and distinctiveness. The church was compelling to many because of the things that set it apart from prevailing societal beliefs and values. And Dr. Hurtado draws out five distinctive features of the early church. Firstly, the church was multiracial and multiethnic, with a high value placed on diversity, equity and inclusion. Secondly, the church was spread across social economic lines with an emphasis on care for the poor. Thirdly, it actively resisted infanticide and abortion. Fourthly, it was unswerving in its vision of marriage and sexuality being between one man and one woman for life. And fifthly, it was non-violent. See, the early church let its light shine brightly in the darkness. And rather than being overcome, they transformed the world. And likewise, in the 21st century, followers of Jesus are called to stand up and stand out, to be different, to be holy. We are to resist any pressure to hide our light or diminish its brightness by becoming like the world around us. So what on earth does it look like for us to be holy in our modern times? I mean, should we separate ourselves out from society, living a different way of life? Should we shout out our rights and highlight society's wrongs? Should we take to wearing cardigans and socks with sandals? Well, strangely, we're going to jump back 2,000 years to the time of Jesus to provide us with those answers. At the time Jesus was living and ministering in Israel, it was a country that was struggling with the impact of living with an occupying force, the Romans, along with the persistent influence of worldly values that were at odds with Jewish holy living. And there were four main groups of people that reacted to these challenges in differing ways. There was the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots and the Pharisees. Now the Sadducees, they were the aristocratic ruling class, the descendants of the priests but heavily involved in politics and power struggles. They were religious conservatives that only recognised the first five books of the Bible but they were also significantly influenced by Greek, by Hellenistic ideas and philosophies. We talked a bit about those in our first talk. The Essenes were completely different. They saw the Sadducees' capitulation to Roman rule and pagan ideologies and rejected it all. They separated themselves physically from society, making their homes within insular monastic communities in the desert. Now the Zealots, they were the freedom fighters, the revolutionaries of the Jewish people who fought against the occupying Romans, leading many revolts, the biggest Actually, it led to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. But then there were the Pharisees. They were the teachers of the law whose Greek name, Pharisees, is translated as set apart, separate. And they concerned themselves with religion more than politics, and they delighted in following God's rules for holiness. And in contrast to the Sadducees, they were a grassroots organisation and although they were less conservative in their religious beliefs, which meant they were more open to modern ideas around angels and, angels and demons, resurrection of the dead and eternal life, 
they rejected completely the influence of Greek philosophies. Now they didn't hide away in the desert like the Essenes, and they avoided violent confrontation like the Zealots, but they were religiously orthodox, and they were driven by their belief that if the nation of Israel could truly live as the holy nation God had called them to be, then God's kingdom would break through and rid their nation of the Romans. Then comes along Jesus. A miracle worker, an amazing teacher, and therefore attracting a massive following. And initially the different religious groups took quite an interest in this man from Nazareth. And the Pharisees, more than any of the other groups, saw in Jesus a kindred spirit, or so they thought. He was a man who gave strict teaching around holiness and God's kingdom, demonstrating it through his powerful healing ministry. But then the cracks that began to show. See, this Jesus, well, he was hanging out with the wrong kind of people. He seemed to be spending his time socialising with people who were far from being holy. He went to the homes and attended the parties of prostitutes and Roman collaborators and people on the fringes of polite society. And rather than condemning sin sinful behaviour, Jesus spoke of forgiveness of sins and grace and love and acceptance of all. But then Jesus really turned against the Pharisees, particularly in one part of Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry, where Jesus, well, he has a right go at them. This is what Matthew says. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus then goes on to explain that although in, I guess, many ways the Pharisees were to be commended for their orthodoxy and pursuit of holiness, the way they lived out their faith was far from ideal. In fact, they shut the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces. They put unnecessary burdens on people by being overly legalistic and rule-obsessed, creating more and more laws that most people couldn't follow and that God didn't even require. But Jesus went further by saying that they, well, they were in fact hypocrites. They didn't even live up to the high standards that they were demanded of others. They nitpicked around little things to make them seem outwardly pure, but neglected the big themes of love, mercy and justice. Jesus says these words recorded by Matthew, On the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. In contrast, Jesus told his followers that his teachings, well, they were light and relatively undemanding, and he wouldn't weigh them down with heavy, unnecessary burdens. In fact, if they would come to him, he would give them rest. You see, the startling truth that I want us to get to grips with, particularly when considering how we react to those that we label as sinful, is that it's possible to be biblically orthodox and yet at odds with Jesus. I certainly found this in both my personal life and in ministry. See, I grew up in a conservative church where I was steeped in biblical teaching and Christian formation. However, that discipleship manifested itself in me as a rule book an honour code to live by, a set of demands that would prove my worth and put me in God's good books. 
So when I went to university at 18 years old, I'd lived a sheltered life where I didn't go to clubs or pubs, I didn't have a girlfriend, and church was my safe place. But university exposed me to a different way of living. And although I attended church religiously, I ended up breaking up all those rules I had built my life upon. My honour code didn't go further than skin deep. And I may have appeared outwardly holy, but in secret I was far from it. So I left university broken, unsure and stuck in a pit of my own making that I couldn't see a way out of. And I remember my minister at the time taking me to one side and telling me, look, God has a plan for your life, but the way you're living it now will put that all in jeopardy. And I pushed back against that indictment. I went on the defensive, but in my heart, I knew that I had heard the truth. And there began the slow and difficult journey that brought me back on track. Later, I will become a minister myself, leading a small church in Luton. And although I discovered that rules did not lead to a holy life, there was, and still is, a part of me that leans towards legalism. And to be honest, if I'd been around during the time of Jesus, I would have probably been a Pharisee. So when faced with people within the church community who broke the rules, it was so easy well, to give them a good telling off, to demand that they get back on the straight and narrow, to come up with policies, rules, and structures that protected the church and ensured good order. In fact, I started to separate jobs within the church and allot them to different groups of people. You know, only church members can do these jobs. Only Christians can do these jobs. And if you're not a Christian, well, we might let you clean the toilets. And I could find biblical justification for all these things. See, my orthodoxy was not the problem. It was my heart that was letting me down. If we look at the New Testament, we find that when the church was in its infancy, its biggest threat was not the world out there with all its negative influences and temptations, though that was, of course, an issue. No, the biggest threat was the cancer within the church that was eating away at its members, and that was hypocrisy and legalism. See, people who were biblical and knew the rules made demands of Jesus' followers that were unnecessarily cumbersome and not required by God. There were rules that were all to do about outward holiness, doing the right thing, acting in the right way, fitting into a mould of behaviours dictated by their interpretation of the Bible. It said, you know, if you want to belong to this church, you need to behave and believe. If you want full acceptance and a place at our table, then we expect you to look a certain way, act a certain way. In fact, look and act just like us. So they ring-fenced the church, maintaining a welcoming facade, but keeping any troubling behaviours at arm's length. Paul called this group the Judaizers, followers of Jesus that insisted that the newly converted Gentiles, that's non-Jews, needed to become Jews, followed their rules and customs as laid out in the Levitical Holiness Code, even down to the rather unappealing prospect of male circumcision. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul called this group those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And time and time again, in his letters to numerous churches, Paul writes to combat this kind of rule following, asking the questions, did we receive forgiveness from the law? Did we receive God's spirit from the law? Are we able to perform miracles because of the law? No. 
It is our faith in Jesus that saves us, that makes us holy and fully acceptable to God. It's our faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit that unites us as followers of Jesus into his body, the church. And we are able to stand in the presence of our holy God, not because we followed the holiness code to the letter, but because Jesus died on a cross, a once for all sacrifice that blots out all our sins and transgressions. It's nothing to do with following rules and regulations. It's not about meeting a set criteria and being outwardly perfect. So this is very much what Becky was talking about in our previous talk, that the gift of eternal life, a life spent forever with God, is not dependent on me or you or what we do or do not do, but on the free gift of God's love and grace demonstrated through Jesus' death on the cross. So, does that mean that what we do doesn't matter? Does it mean that we should just love people and forget about sin and holiness? I mean, after all, that's dealt with, right? Well, not quite. Jesus has saved us from the ultimate consequences of our sinful life, and that's death. But there was two purposes for the holiness code in Leviticus. And the second part was all about God's chosen people living as holy people, standing out, shining brightly in the darkness. And Paul, in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, wrote these words, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that means made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not follow God. For God did not call us to be impure but live a holy life. James, who was a brother of Jesus and the leader of the early Jesus movement, highlighted the need for our inward faith to be displayed by our outward actions, that what we do matters. So we're left with this dichotomy between, on the one hand, being forgiven and no longer constrained by the holiness code, and on the other hand, being called to live out our faith by being holy. I think what is really important to realise here is that ultimately none of us will be fully holy until physical death has taken place and God's kingdom has fully come. That all of us have sinned and continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that none of us have it all sorted, not even the Pharisees and the Judaizers. And all of us are called to focus more on our own pursuit of holiness than that of others. The second important thing to remember is that being holy is a process that starts from the point in which Jesus saves us and comes to completion when we die. And that process is called sanctification, which means separation. And it's the process by which followers of Jesus become separated from the world and its negative influence on their lives. When we first accept Jesus as Lord of our lives, receive his forgiveness and reorient our lives towards God, the power of sin is broken in our lives and we are free to pursue holiness. But that pursuit takes a lifetime where we take steps forward and steps back and sins in our lives are revealed and pointed out by God at different 
points, different times in our lives. And God is incredibly gracious to us. He walks with us on this journey, taking our burdens, not laying them on us, patiently waiting for us to get back on track and forgiving us when we mess up. And he works within us through his Holy Spirit, dwelling within us to day by day transform us into Jesus's likeness so we might better reflect God's glory and shine brightly in the darkness. But if we rely only on the Holy Spirit to bring about that change, well, we'll become lazy and undisciplined and we will fail to live up to being the holy people God has called us to be. But if we rely only on following rules and regulations, we become legalistic and self-righteous, which robs our lives and the lives of others in our orbit of influence of any joy in life. We are called to pursue holiness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, trusting that God will work with us and within us to make us more like him. At the beginning of this conversation that we started a few weeks ago, I talked about the fact that all of us come to scripture and to life with a particular set of glasses on. Lenses through which we view, understand and interpret the world around us. Now, for some of us, these lenses lead us down a more liberal living out of our faith, where love and care for people trumps theological interpretations and biblical truths. Others of us have our prescriptions shaped in such a way that we place the Bible above feelings or pastoral concerns, perhaps preferring a black and white view of the world we inhabit. Some of us interpret our faith through an Old Testament lens where rule following and holiness is paramount. Or maybe you see yourselves as more progressive, endeavouring to contextualise an out-of-date Bible for a modern and more enlightened audience. But regardless of the glasses that you have been handed in life, as Christians we have been given a new set of lenses to put on that should colour our vision significantly, and that's the lens of Jesus. When we read the Bible, when we look at the world around us, and when we disciple and discipline other Christians, when we engage with people who are perhaps not like us and have differing views, we need to do so through the lens of Jesus. Now, Jesus was strict in some ways extreme with his teachings about holiness and what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. In other ways, he was open and accepting, showing genuine love and care and affection towards the sinners in society. And he reserved his biggest indictments, echoed by Paul, for those who were overly religious, moralistic and demanding. So Jesus convicted but never condemned. He challenged but never coerced. And he journeyed with people knowing that they would fail, but he never rejected them. Jesus is love covered with flesh. So when it comes to how we treat others, and deal with sin in our church, we need to get in the habit of repeatedly asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do?